Hello, and welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the pop culture and real-life moments that shaped us. I am your host, Crystal, and I am so glad to have you back for this penultimate episode of Season 3. How are you doing this week? It's been a pretty crazy one in the world of drag and transvestitism. I mean, in the UK, we've had a slew of articles targeting an event that I'm familiar with called Cabba Baba Rave. A bunch of my friends are performers there. It's been really targeted by the right-wing press as, you know, pedophilic and grooming children and all of this nonsense. And then in the US, in Tennessee, drag bans, other bills coming into effect in other states. It's all really crazy. And wow, I just, I hope you're taking care of yourself out there. And I know you already know this because you're a listener of this podcast and that means you're a very smart person. But all of this is, is just an attempt to convince people that being gender non-conforming, being trans, being different than cis is somehow dangerous to children. And we know that it's not. If you could make a child gay or trans by showing them queer content, you wouldn't have any queer people at all because we'd all be straight because we all grew up on straight content. Anyway, we all know it's nonsense, but I hope it's not taking too much of a toll on you out there. And uh, if you're an ally and not affected by this issue, well, I'm sure that you're using your platform and voice to spread the good word. Because you're good like that. Well done, you. So my guest this week is porn star John Thomas, who I've known for a few years and I am obsessed with. Not just because he's gorgeous, but because he is so thoughtful and clever and interesting to speak with. Uh, this conversation is fabulous. We talk about you know, how he got into porn what it's like coming out to your parents as a porn star, uh, being diagnosed with HIV, and what that means in the modern day of PrEP, and really just finding your own truth, power, and freedom from shame. And it's a really, really fab conversation. I know that you're going to love it. So we will get into it right now. Just remember, go like, comment, subscribe, share, do all the things, support the pod. Okay. Thank you so much, and let's get into the episode. Hi, John. Hello, Crystal. How are you? I'm really good. I'm very, very good. Thank good. You. It's so nice to have you here in my home. Yeah. A live in-person recording. I'm very happy to be here. Ah, it's great. This is the first time this season that I've been able to do an in-person recording. And I tried this last season and it, the sound was not good. So I'm oh. hoping this time we've really, we've nailed it. I hope, yeah. I hope you, you can say you nailed John Thomas. <laughs> been waiting for that my whole life. <laughs> What's going on in your life right now? How's your, how's the beginning of your year? Um, I had a really crappy January. I think I generally feel quite negatively towards January um, and so I try and be somewhere warm and sunny and this year I failed and I was in London and it was cold and wet and dark but in the last few days I really feel like I've turned a psychological corner Mm -hmm. and I'm feeling much more upbeat about what's going on and what's to come. I just find my energy level the second January hits just disappears like my 
will to exercise, my ability to get things done, all of that. As soon as the sun sets, it's like, it's over for me. So January's impossible. Yeah. It sucks. What's turned the corner for you? Mindset. Wait. <laughs> I went back to therapy. <laughs> That's basically this, what this podcast is often called unlicensed therapy. So <laughs> uh, I went back to therapy. I also like, I've been I've been living deliberately nomadically without having an address for just over a year now. And when I came back to London in January, in my head I was going to be back in my old routine, but that didn't happen. So once I embraced living nomadically, still uh, on home soil then it was much easier mm. to countenance not having a routine, not having a regular place to live. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's hard. That is super hard, the nomadic lifestyle. Y- y- uh, yes, and I-, I have this conversation a lot with people and like with friends who've had kids and stuff like this, and I think there's hard things about it, but for me right now, the rewards and the benefits I have outweigh the hardships that come from it. Yeah. I spent all of last year basically living nomadically in London because we were doing a renovation on this house. Yeah. So it was just like me and five suitcases, like going from <laughs> home to home, like spare room at a friend's, Airbnb, blah, blah, blah. And that's, that kind of thing is fun when it's an exciting location. But yeah, when yeah. it's like from Walthamstow to Mile End, it's, it's like yeah. the novelty isn't quite as... Yeah. It's great when you're like, ooh, a new tube line. <laughs> when I was jumping from like Ipanema to mm, Buenos Aires to that's Medellin, different. Yeah. Um, for very cheap rents and very nice beaches, it was great. Yeah. But yeah, Bethnal Green to Camberwell. Yeah. At vastly inflated prices was not quite so. Um, Less rewarding. lustrous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's next then? You've got some nice travel coming up, you said. Oh, yeah. I have a couple of weekends away at the end of February. One is to Amsterdam and the other is to Paris. And they're both for pleasure, which Mm. is really nice. Nice. And then the plan is to go back to the USA in March. Although I always find the USA a terrifying uh, border to cross. Always have done since I was young. We lived there briefly when I was about five or six. And I was also in San Francisco a lot as a teenager. Whereas I go into like a South American country and they're just like, hi. Yeah, welcome. We're glad to have you. Yeah. What what do you say you're in the US to do? Tourism. Tourism. Yeah. That's so what, that's what I'm there for. <laughs> you're going there for tourism. Yeah. Uh, I do the same or I used to do the same. I just got my visa, actually. So I'm allowed to work there properly, which is great. But yeah, prior to that, you're like, I'm coming for fun. And I also brought a suitcase full of wigs and yeah. that's how i have fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean many people have fun that way yeah yeah one of my friends was, had a problem recently where um they're a photographer and they went to the usa with their camera and a camera is an understandable thing to take with you on holiday i'd say so but yeah he got pulled aside and had a full kind of interrogation because he had his camera with him wow and he because he declared that he was a photographer wow Oh, they just really don't want people coming in and stealing those jobs, do no. they? <laughs> protect the drag queen jobs, yeah. protect the porn jobs. <laughs> You're like, I'm not taking our tips. <laughs> totally. Oh, I forgot to ask you at the top of the episode, but how do you identify and what are your pronouns? Uh, I identify as male and my pronouns are he, him. Do you identify as gay? Queer? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I was no, no, that's fine. That's People always... It's, um, it's a be, big question. You know, it's a really big question. And and it's been one that I have really thought about a lot over this past year with traveling so much and meeting different people of different genders and sexualities in different places and different cultures. And I think 
by being gay or by being queer, I'm already deviated from a kind of the binary spectrum of heterosexuality. But I kind of think that all of us are, but it's very hard for like 99% of us to voice that difference. And then I think because of my work, it's um, easier to go with being, I'm a gay man. Yeah. But I think I'm, I think all of us are more complicated than just one little yeah. level. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you about that as well. And I wonder if being a porn star does place limits on you in terms of self-expression or because people want you to be an ideal or expect you to be a certain way, you know, super mask or does that ever chafe? Um, yeah, I suppose it does. I guess I don't think about it chafing, but I am conscious that in my work, aspects of me become very important fantasies to other people. Mm. And there's a danger in me, like, so like people can get really excited or really angry if I shave my chest, or if I grow my hair long, or have my head shaved, or have my piercings in or piercings out. And different people can react quite strongly to that, which is just really simple changes. Someone on OnlyFans got quite angry when I replied. They asked me whether I would ever do a video with a woman, and I said... Although I didn't expect you anytime soon, I was open-minded to it. And then they were like, oh, I knew it. You're just another person gay-baiting for oh, wow. attention. So yeah, I think when your body, and to some extent you, is like how you're earning your money, then there is like a pressure on making sure that you still present mm. in an earnable way. Mm. I find this with social media, but it starts to feel like your palatability is the most important thing about you to your fan base or you need to maintain your palatability and give them what they want from you in order to you know prolong your career as long as possible is that something that rings true for you yeah it, yes it does and i also think with social media and to some extent with with like only fans and just the fans of social media pages as well there's things i care about but I think if I turn my social media into purely a platform to either promote events or promote causes, then people will switch off. So I try and be judicious. I'll generally always like promote stuff to do with sexual health and well-being because I think people who are following me will take that information from me. But I think there can be a danger if I were to start, I don't know, advocating everyone should read poetry every day or something. Right. I think that like, might chime with a few of my fans, but not everyone. Mm -hmm. Like People don't follow me to like find out about poetry. Yep. And it's fine that they follow me because they find me sexy or... So yeah, I, I think also, yeah. I feel very disconnected from social media. In right. Terms of, I used to think it was like me sharing my life with the world, but now I see it very much as like a particular platform for doing a particular task. Hmm. That's probably healthier. In, yeah, I in, think so. Yeah. <laughs> I feel the same way that I it's now a thing that I do for my job, but I kind of miss the days of like just being able to have friends on on Instagram <laughs> and, yeah. and like take a photo of my food and not think about who it was who was seeing it and just, you know, living that kind of carefree life. But obviously I'm not going to I'm not sitting here poor me. I've got loads of followers and What a shame your yeah. success. Yeah. But it you know there are drawbacks to it for sure yeah and i think something i'm also like keen to to say is like it's also not real mm -hmm. like someone said to me the other day 
in person oh you're all you're just always with all these sexy guys and it's like yes on instagram i'm always sharing photos of me with the sexy guys i've just filmed with Mm -hmm. and i'm quite deliberately not sharing photos of me with my my friends and my family where it's just personal Mm -hmm. because i need to hold on to something that is for me what are the not the biggest misconceptions but what are the the things that people always say to you about doing porn that you're sick of hearing (laughs) or the things that are yeah that you're not sick of hearing but Um, what's the common stuff i i do really enjoy having a job that people do find really intriguing um particularly in the uk we come from a culture that's very shy about talking about our Mm. bodies and sex and sexuality so if someone meets me and asks i do for a living and i say i do porn or i do only fans like I know that that's, that is like a lead-on question for them mm-hmm. because it's like it's titillating or, or or curious. Actually, I end up giving a lot of, I feel like, relationship and sex therapy to people. Mm-hmm. I was at a friend's birthday party the other day. I spent an hour talking with a girl who wanted to find a way to come out to her parents as bisexual. And like I didn't go to the party to, to do that, but just because, <laughs> I did, but because I did porn and was able to be open about things that, other people feel very uncomfortable talking about it became the gateway to having this this conversation about coming out and i i can feel happy having those conversations sometimes other times it can be tiring yeah a lot of people want to know the thing the thing that i dislike the most being asked is like who is your favorite top or who is the best top or who is the best cock because i don't think sexuality works in that pyramid way no i think desire and taste is really varied and diverse and that's so beautiful and wonderful i'm lucky to have had sex with a lot of very charismatic attractive passionate loving tender people but i don't rank them yeah and each one has been wonderful in a different way that you can't really compare like for like but I do feel like in porn, and, and maybe you feel this in drag, it's like we work in this ranking system where there can only be one one winner or one number one. And I think that's like sexuality doesn't work that way. There's not one person who everyone fancies. Like different people like all different kinds of things. Um, and lots of people don't fancy me. And that's absolutely fine and really valid. Yeah. Do you lead with, like, if, if you just meet a stranger and they ask you, what do you do? Do you, are you always honest about it? Uh, I used to be quite upfront about it because I, that to me was very important because I felt that I was trying to break down people's misconceptions about sex workers. One man destigmatizing army. Yeah, but, but very like, you know, I'm going to do this wonderful thing for people. <laughs> it was very ego led. Um, whereas now I, I try and like read the, I take the pulse a bit first. Right. Um, is this someone I want to have that conversation with? Often now I'll just say I'm a model. It's also really funny because if someone doesn't ask me, I often know it means that they know. Right. And they're avoiding asking me the question. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. This morning I had a conversation with my bank. It was a financial health checkup or something. Uh-huh. And they were like, so where does your money come from? And I was like, oh, I'm a digital creative um, <laughs> content content creator. And they were like, oh, what kind? And I was like, travel and sexual health. <laughs> and it's not a lie. It's not a lie. Because I was suddenly panicking. Because I know that some of the banks are like, yeah. sex work. And yeah. so suddenly I was like caught in this phone chat. Trying to be like, fuck, like, <laughs> what do I say? Uh-huh. 
Um, so yeah, periodically I'll say model, maybe dancer when I'm doing more club gigs. Yeah. And I also, even though I, I guess I am very defined by my work, I really dislike how we like to define people by their jobs. Um, it's such an easy first question, isn't it? When you meet yes, someone. Yes, it's like, oh, hello, what's your name? Uh, what do you do for a living? Yeah. And then someone's like, oh, I work in HR for a digital media agency. And that's right. the end of it. And then it's like, great, cool. Where, yeah. do you, where do you live? Do you have a mortgage? It's like, yeah. it feels to me very British. Mm-hmm. And not very interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, I don't know if you've ever been to Burning Man. No, I haven't. Tell it's, me about it. It's lovely, but the one thing that is really special about being there is that it's quite taboo to ask someone what they do. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that. I was really worried you're about to be like, the worst thing about Burning no, Man, no. everyone is constantly asking no. you what There's you do for a living. There's lots of terrible things about it. But one of the nice things is that you're just like, you feel a little bit anonymous. And for mm. a week, you're putting your life back home on hold and you, people will say where are you camping what's the best thing you've seen so far what have you been like and you, you're yeah. kind of all talking about something different for once which is nice i have that with the yeah what do you do for a living because drag is also something that yeah. I think you can play respectability politics with or like you can be tired or you don't necessarily want to have the conversation with a stranger about and so yeah if you're in a taxi and and you've got all your suitcases and the the Uber driver's like, what do you do for a living? It's like, oh, can I, can I be bothered? And yeah. I'll be like, often I'll just say DJ or party promoter or depending on, you know, the time of day or what's up. Or sometimes I'm yeah. in full drag and it's like, well, <laughs> get, take one guess. <laughs> yeah. And I can imagine now as well that five to 10 years ago saying you worked in drag wouldn't have elicited like a massive conversation from everyone. Whereas now it's like such a hot, yeah. It feels like definitely the population spectrum. Yeah, definitely, it's huge. It's much more understood. But Joe Bloggs, Uber Isn't driver, this? doesn't still doesn't have any clue. No, <laughs> and he and he might still think like, oh, what does that mean? Like, and not know the difference between being trans and doing drag and all sorts of different things. So you end you end up in some like kind of tedious conversations but it's good we're, we're educating people i had an uber driver pick me up recently at about four in the morning somewhere <laughs> he said like so are you going to work or are you going home now no he's like, is he going home from work or are you just starting and i was like of all the questions to ask someone at four in the morning who probably doesn't look like they're ready for work <laughs> like work hasn't come into it yeah <laughs> i was like i'm going home <laughs> Please take me home. Yeah, yeah. Let's not have this conversation right now. <laughs> You're like, you big sunglasses on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, just off to clock in. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> One other thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, what are the benefits of doing porn? What's your favorite thing about it? I mean, I think right now my favorite thing is what it enables, which is travel. I used to work in theater before porn, and I had a full-time creative job, but I didn't have enough money or enough time to travel. And I, even if my career in theater had changed, I don't think it would have enabled travel the way that I can travel now. Um, and then part of travel is meeting people. Like back when I was working with, with Tim Tales, and I would be partnered with people for scenes, um, some of the really amazing moments I had would be when I would be partnered with someone where we didn't speak the same language mm -hmm. and how you negotiate working with and having sex with someone where you don't speak the same language. And again, I think the Britishness of always like trying to over talk everything just to like shut the, that out 
it's a really lovely human experience just to be like relating to one another as like humans as like as mammals and creatures it's very like i don't know that's then, nice yeah that's lovely i mean I, I do also really enjoy sex but i don't need to do porn to have good sex yeah when i do drag i love doing drag and most of the time when i'm doing drag for work i'm really happy to be doing it but sometimes it's just work and i guess that must happen the same in porn yeah yes yeah, so when i was starting out i would i was doing the kind of studio stuff there'd be times where it definitely was work N now that i'm like 99 percent of my income is from from my fan pages i am fortunate and it's also important to me that it's really dictated by desire and consent mm. and that it's and so yeah so that when i'm having sex it is with someone that i want to have sex with and it is for pleasure and if that desire changes to be able to stop and i do now periodically stop filming if it's not feeling right either for me or for the other person i like that it's one of those amazing things when you figure out you can have a career doing something that you love it's like, in one way, find, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Or on the other hand, it's find a job that you love and you'll work every day for the rest yeah. of your life. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a balance constantly. Yeah. And I think I definitely have friends who maybe work harder than me and they probably do more uh, working when they're having sex. And there's also people for whom they do have to work harder for whatever, in, in terms of earning Right. I'm aware as a sex worker, I'm in quite a privileged position. I see. In terms of like my income. Yeah, and you can say no. And yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm filming with someone who's maybe newer to the industry, or maybe they see me as a like, um, the filming with me will be beneficial to their career. Uh -huh. And in my head, that I'm trying to read like how much are they really into mm -hmm. me as a human versus me as like a. A marketing tool or, mm -hmm. or, or um, stepping stone to the mm -hmm. next thing because obviously that can affect their consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yours potentially? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's just success, isn't it? You, at, at some point in a career, yeah. I mean, I feel the same way sometimes. Yeah. Actually, yeah, there was, I can't remember uh, who it was now, but it was, uh, it was about two actresses, the more established, famous, older Hollywood actress and then the younger ingenue and the older one was trying to make out that the ingenue was lucky to be making the film with her but in reality it's that the ingenue had all the power but it was important for the older one to try and establish that they were the top dog even though right. their career was benefiting from being seen with like the bright young thing yeah. Um, so yeah it, like yeah I think our jobs are fascinating in terms of all these kind of like power plays uh -huh. going on beyond the actual art or performance of what we're doing yeah Absolutely. Well, John, should we get into the things that made you queer? Yes, let's get into them. Okay, great. So, you know how it works. Uh, every week, my guest brings a person, a place, a film or TV series, a piece of music, and a wild card that helped them understand, accept, or embrace their queer identity. And you have sent me your list and I love it. I want to get right into it. Sweet. So up first, we've got your wild card. And uh, I think you wanted to talk about yeah. dyspraxia. Yeah. 
So I guess I've since I've sent you the list, I've managed to identify the wild car as more of a thing thing. And <laughs> to help make it relatable to pop culture, it is like the box of school reports and old letters and pictures that your parents keep okay. uh, in the attic. It doesn't need to be related to pop okay. culture. It can Fine. just be dyspraxia. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, but I love that you're overthinking it. Classic me, classic me. <laughs> um, classic left brain thinking. So, yeah, I, I have dyspraxia. But recently I was going through this paperwork from our old house that we had to sell after my mum died. And I found um, a letter which was a referral from the Child and Family Therapy Service at the hospital in Bath. And it's just this one paragraph that really stuck out to me, mm. which was, I met with Mrs. East, my mother, today in order to discuss her concerns about John. As you are aware, the parent's main concern is John's difficulty socialising with his male peers. I understand that John prefers to play with girls and enjoys dressing up and playing with dolls to more physical or boyish activities. Mrs. East reported that this tendency has been a long-standing one and that recently John commented that he was different from the other boys. Wow. So I was eight, seven or eight years old. Wow. Um, but this letter then goes on to, to recommend me for um, an assessment for what was then known as clumsy syndrome, which we now call dyspraxia, which affects your, well, for me, affected balance and coordination, which is why I didn't like playing like sports and things so I was bad at them but I love like drawing pictures and playing with dolls and all the fine motor skills and uh but I just found this letter really funny because that paragraph is clearly about sexuality mm -hmm. and yet either it's being acknowledged or it's just kind of being ignored and then I guess there's correlation between a neurological condition that I have that was diagnosed quite young so it was often missed for quite a long time but it's like, yeah, because I wasn't being straight, therefore I got diagnosed with dyspraxia. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. So what you're saying is dyspraxia was not a misdiagnosis off the basis of being queer, but you were assessed because of your queerness and therefore yeah. diagnosed. And in a way, I knew that, and then I knew that I was dyspraxic going through my puberty and adolescence. So I knew that I was different to the other boys with this particular condition. And so then I guess once like sexual desire kicked in or um, sexual urges during puberty, mm. then it was like, oh, I already know that I'm more like the girls in terms of how I behave. But now I'm having like, I kind of had feelings towards girls, I had feelings towards boys. And yeah, I'm sure there are dyspraxic straight people out there as well. <laughs> but for me, it's like, oh, the two things go together. Uh -huh. And it's like the classic um, gay people can't sit in a chair properly. Right. Which again, oh, no. <laughs> I'm not even sat on chairs right now. <laughs> Just look down at my incredibly lopsided legs. <laughs> so what led to you getting that referral and like, um, so there were things, so it also affected my speech. So I lisped a lot as a child, so I had speech therapy after this. There's another report where I would fall over whilst putting on my coat because I would unbalance whilst trying to like reach into the arm of the coat. And then simple things, well, simple things, simple assessment things, like if a ball was thrown at me, it would I would reach out to the right to catch it, but the ball would go past the left side of my head. Oh, right. Because my head just really, and my coordination has improved through doing physical activities but actually it required me 
being able to embrace physical activities like post puberty because mm-hmm. like during like teenage years and stuff trying to embrace like cross country football anything boyish was really hard because of like trying to work out what being gay was or mm-hmm. what my identity was and so once I knew I was gay, then it's like, okay, now I can do like gay sports. And then I loved playing gay rugby, right. but I never wanted to play straight rugby. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Is there another word for dyspraxia that maybe they use in the US? Um, I just feel like you'd, you don't hear about it as much. So dyspraxia is part of like the, the dys family of things. Uh-huh. So like dis, it's very similar to dyslexia and also dyscalculia. Oh, the US, they might call it DPD. Okay. Uh, or D, like, I, there's definitely an acronym for it in the US yeah. because I had, when I used to teach, I had a student who had the same as me, but her parents called it like DPD or something. DPD. It's, um, Delivery for you. Yeah. From DPD. A bit of homework for our American sure. listeners across the pond. <laughs> so you were having trouble and you were clumsy, but you go to the doctor and the doctor basically diagnosed you as gay. <laughs> well, it sounds like I diagnosed myself as gay. I'm the one that said I was different to the other boys. Right. Um, but yeah, but there was a formal written letter oh, in crazy. which... Um, but also that my parents were observing it. Yeah. And how do you think having that diagnosis, as you say, it, it, it kind of defined you a little bit as you were growing up? Yeah. So I just realized I was... Very, so what I was aware of as an eight-year-old was that I had a diagnosis that I was different to the other boys. Right. It wasn't to do with sexuality, but it was yeah. that I was different to the other yeah. boys. And I think I carried that with me, probably with some pride, mm. but also with like the, the the pain of being the outsider or the misfit as well. Could you use it to like get out of gym class and, and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I, just, away I, from... I did a lot of things to get out of gym class. Yeah. I had a bad toe for a very long time. And then I did Latin GCSE instead of doing... Uh, PE when I was 15 years old, so two years of avoiding it. Um, you can choose, in the UK, you can choose Latin. In my, Roman, in my Roman Catholic school, you were allowed to do Latin GCSE uh, instead of going to PE class. Uh, Catholics, <laughs> good for something. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. How do you feel about that diagnosis now? Is it still something that you think about, or is it not really? Yeah, so I was re-diagnosed when I started my BA, and again, no, wait, no, I wasn't re-diagnosed when I did my master's, but it did come up, and I had support. And what was really interesting at university, because I'd been very academic and bookish in school, because I was a loner, I had never considered what the uh, neurological cerebral elements of dyspraxia might be, and it does affect things like... um, planning and time management Hmm. and how you communicate your ideas uh but through the kind of one-on-one like tutor support i had they also talked about like there are huge advantages to being neurodivergent and like actually a lot of people are very creative who are dyslexic or dyspraxic and i won't ever know what it's like to be inside someone else's brain or like a normal brain and uh sometimes my brain is a bit scary but a lot of the time, it's really creative. Mm. And I really enjoy the way that my brain works. And periodically, I'm really aware that it works in a way that can bring a lot of joy to me and to other people as well, um, in the way that I connect ideas and things and uh, make things happen. I love that. So I'm, I'm happy with it. Love it. Let's move on to your next item. It's your person. 
We're talking about Ashley Ryder. We are talking about Ashley Ryder, um, who is a gay porn actor from the UK. And he must have started his career around the time that I was 18 or so. Mm-hmm. I guess so with more broadly, I started watching porn when I was too young to be watching porn. Um, and my mum found out. So she, And my mum was a very supportive to like her gay son as like, his parents go. But she explained how like porn is not good, how the people involved are coerced, or they're super desperate, they're very unhappy, and so you shouldn't like endorse it by watching it. And I felt a lot of shame from being caught watching porn, um, but also I found it really hard to reconcile what I was being told about the world of porn with what I was seeing. Because what I saw was a lot of really happy, very attractive men. And I looked at myself, like gangly, spotty, pale, like unhappy teenager. And I was like, how on earth is am I like in the better situation here? Mm. So yeah, so to me, porn seemed really aspirational. And then I guess I can let people research the kind of porn I make rather than talking explicitly about it here. I, I think it's fine to talk okay. about. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty pretty open-minded, adventurous, kinky, perverted, piggy, depending how you want to word it. And uh, but I thought as a young man, I didn't see other young people like me. It mm. felt like everyone that was into more fetish elements of sex was much older, by which I mean 35 plus. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient when you're a teenager. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then Ashley Ryder was this, like, he was a few years older than me, looked younger, um, and just seemed really confident and was embracing his identity as a super pig bottom. Um, and I completely idolized him. I had one of his films on DVD, which was Lost Innocence Volume 2. Uh, and I loved it. It was like, wow, here is this young guy, like kind of owning, one owning being a bottom. And there was, I feel like bottom shaming kind of still exists, but back whenever this was, 15 years ago, it felt like a much bigger deal. Definitely. Um, a bigger problem. And I thought he was great. And then I left Bath, where I'd grown up, went to London to go to drama school, um, did a course called Performance Arts Degree. So I was looking at theatre, but also live art and performance. And I was discovering how the body could be used in performance, which could feature like live tattooing, or even like kind of sexual expression and sexual performance. So suddenly porn, which had seemed totally different and like an immoral art form versus theatre now felt part of the same spectrum, mm. um, which was great for my brain and getting everything firing. Um, and then coupled with that, I was going to like big gay clubs and meeting gay, all these different gay people that went in the countryside. Um, and one of the clubs I went to was Hard On, run by Susie Kruger. And there at the bar one time, I met Ashley Ryder and it was such a like, oh my gosh, I'm meeting my idol moment. This is incredible. And he was super lovely and down to earth. And yeah, it's funny now because I appreciate when some people meet me now and get flustered. I remember what that's like. <laughs> but he then um, made so friends and he invited me to do live sex shows with him at different clubs in London. Um, and in the before, like, 
smartphones and things, this seemed like the perfect way for me to try out doing porn without any of the repercussions. Mm, nothing's um, going yeah. on, onto media or no, being like, immortalized. Yeah. So I get to have the experience of being an exhibitionist and being watched without, oh, it's going to affect your future because once you make that film, it's going to be out there forever or, or, or whatever. And, and uh, so I really kind of embraced kind of doing this kind of sex work in clubs um, alongside going to venues like the RVT and the Chelsea Theatre and kind of watching and participating in live art and performance art that could be sexy or could not be. And it all feel like part of this one continuum. And actually, Ashley at the time was working quite closely with David Hoyle, who mm -hmm. is like an iconic um, cabaret and drag performer in London. And I got to perform with him as well. But Ashley had this particular character where he was like the nephew of Uncle David and they made a film. And I was like, wow, like you can do porn. You can actually make real art. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was super buzzing and super excited about what could be for me, this young 22-year-old twink in London. And then that's when I got diagnosed with HIV. Oh, right. And that really put the brakes on this kind of liberal, free, loving and living lifestyle that I was embracing. And I think coming from a religious background, it really felt like, oh, HIV is the punishment you get for not behaving. Um, and so I really uh, stepped back from uh, embracing the kinkiness or the, the diversity of my sexuality Went into a very happy monogamous relationship for a long time, but yeah, it was it was uh, it was definitely like it felt like that was the end of like that chapter of my life yeah. for a long time. So you kind of saw Ashley and saw a possibility of a kind of life that you were really interested in, and could see like it wasn't just one thing with Ashley; it was lots of things and and a real yeah exciting life. And he he was and is like a very creative person. He also went to um, an art institution to study. Yeah, I think of him as like my my porn drag mother. Mm. I think I have three of them, but he's like the original one. That's nice. Like if it weren't for him, my path to being here now would be very different. If you hadn't met him in that bar, would you have? Do you think porn would have happened for you, or was it like a matter of time, or was that? the only way in and because you had that way in it happened um so it was 10 years from being diagnosed with hiv to me actually making my first porn oh ah, right so i think i would have got to porn eventually anyway if it hadn't been for the hiv i probably would have started making porn when i was uh, 20 21 22 right but i think meeting ashley like i can't kind of separate meeting ashley and meeting david and like hard on and the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, all of these things coexisted together um, with a lot of other wonderful people, artists, queer people, straight people that I knew and met mm. and fucked. And they, they all coexisted together in this like wonderful way that helped shape me. Which I guess is quite normal when you go from being a gay boy in the countryside to... Absolutely. Why did... I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but why did your HIV diagnosis put the brakes on things? And, and how does it feel now? Um, what, what enabled you to get yeah. back into it? I mean, when I was diagnosed with HIV, I was before PrEP. Um, I was fortunate in that I knew people who lived with HIV at the time, and I knew that they could take, they could take medication, that they could 
relatively happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it was very normal back then. This is like 2010 for people to not want to have sex with you or not want to date you if they were negative and you were positive. Yeah. So with my diagnosis, I, f- I fully expected my sex life and my di- dating life to change completely. But I also knew that there were a lot of HIV positive people that I could have very good sex with. But um, it wasn't until several years later that I met a very nice boy at a, a party in Bristol because normally I would always I would always share my status before having sex with someone, and, and eventually, like I was on medication and I was undetectable, but like that still wasn't like widely understood what being undetectable meant. Mm-hmm. And because I'd met this boy at the past and we hadn't spoken on Grindr or anything, there was never this natural point to kind of tell him that I was HIV positive. And we ended up back at his and we're in his bed and we're kissing, and but I was really delaying having sex because I was like I like him so much so I feel like I can't not tell him because my I care about him but also I'm if I tell him in this moment it's gonna kill the sexiness of this moment um and might may also lead to like outright rejection at this point of very intense intimacy and uh I think eventually he asked me like if I was all right because maybe I started crying or something um and so then I told him I was I was HIV positive but um, on meds and undetectable. And he was like, it doesn't change anything. Mm. That's what he said. And it was like such a lovely, affirming, caring moment. And then we had a little relationship until I became a psychopathic ex. But now we're good <laughs> friends. <laughs> oh. Yeah. How do you look back at that period of your life, that diagnosis? And, you know, obviously so much has changed more recently with how we understand mm. HIV and and with PrEP, it's just a, it's changed everything, I feel. Yeah, I, I, do, I, have, I have so many thoughts and feelings about HIV um, for me. HIV is like a virus, but also it's like a cultural phenomenon, particularly mm-hmm. for like the, for us, for our, for the gay community, but like for a number of communities in the world, past and present. When I was diagnosed, I met someone else who was around my age who had HIV, and they said how they liked that they felt part of a legacy. Um, and I, I initially found that a bit troubling, but as I sat with it, I kind of understood what he meant. It's not that he or I were like chasing having HIV, and I would, I would much prefer to not have HIV, but I, I find like the whole HIV/AIDS chapter in the gay in our our history and our culture. I, I feel a lot of guilt about having HIV and being alive when so many young people aren't. Mm. But I, I guess I also feel part of that story, particularly having had HIV from before prep, and like and living through all these changes. I'm like, and I think there will be more changes that happen. But also, like, I remember there was one time quite recently at, at the at Dean Street at the doctors, where the nurse had to leave the room. So I was like reading things on the wall to like pass the time. And um, so now with my HIV, I have to go every six months to do different blood tests and things. There's like a yearly checkup and then like a six month checkup. Um, and they test different like things like liver function and, and whatever else, cholesterol. 
and like looking at this wall chart is like the different things you have to test and how frequently as a person living with HIV gets older. And it was this real realization that like I have so many, it's good in some ways, but I have so many years ahead of me of going for these tests every six months, every year. Mm. And as they get older, they'll be testing for more and more things because as you become older, living with HIV becomes more complex and needs are more complex. But also maybe there will be a cure in like a relatively short amount of time. Who knows? So it's, yeah, it's kind of fascinating. And sometimes, and I'm really happy that PrEP exists. I'm really happy that the knowledge that someone who's HIV positive and on medication and undetectable can't pass on the virus. I'm really happy that that knowledge coupled with PrEP has removed so much stigma mm. um, towards people living with HIV. Does it? still come up in your work or in personal life as um, like as an issue for people i've knowingly had one person not want to film with me because i have hiv not that they knew i had hiv uh at the time but that they'd said to the producer they'd only they wouldn't have sex with hiv positive people right um i've been very lucky working with tim tales and other students i've worked with hiv hasn't been an issue i'm aware of other performers particularly in the usa where i think having hiv is an issue right uh with certain studios but i haven't had those experiences to talk about them in detail yeah it's funny because i feel like in porn there would be such a, a determined like everyone would be so careful and i feel like it would be by the books versus someone you just meet off grinder where i could imagine a scenario where you know you don't necessarily know this person but when it's through work it's like things are going to be done a bit more properly i'm surprised that it's still an issue in porn yeah i mean i think in the usa it's an insurance thing right like, okay um yeah like yeah i think it's an insurance thing probably but again it's based on very outdated medical yeah. knowledge yeah i think that is also i think I'm concerned about complacency that's attached to PrEP. Mm -hmm. And I think um, real, like when I grew up, having sex without a condom, barebacking, was very taboo and very kinky and you knew it was naughty or you had to wait till you were in a monogamous relationship and you'd done your tests, et cetera, et cetera. Because also it isn't just HIV that's the problem from like having sex without condoms. And then a generation of, in the UK, guys were able to get onto the PrEP trials. Generally guys, let's say like, in their late 20s or 30s. And I think there was a real problem. There's lots of young guys, like teenagers and early 20s, who aren't on PrEP, but the only behavior being modeled to them mm. is, um, is sex without condoms. Mm. And so in the UK, for example, HIV rates are going up in like right. 16 to 25 year old guys. I had a friend, a young friend recently get HIV. And I was like, so sad, not angry at them. But like they weren't on PrEP, but they knew that PrEP existed. But it's like, I think when PrEP came out, it was like, oh my gosh, this is the wonder drug. And a lot of gay men were like, like I need to have this. And I think now it's been like, oh, like, I think if he's on PrEP, then I'm probably fine. Mm. And that's kind of where the problems can happen. Yeah, people assuming everyone's on it now yeah. and not actually having the conversation. Yeah. And actually, there was one time when I was at drama school when... I went to join two people who so we had a threesome. I joined them, and when I arrived, they were having unprotected sex. 
And I was like, oh, well, if it's unprotected, I guess they're both negative. Mm. Um, and so I joined in. And then because I didn't say anything, they were both positive. They were like, oh, he didn't say anything. So he must be positive too. And then afterwards, I was like walking around his beautiful apartment. I was opposite my drama school. Um, and I saw a book called like Living with HIV. And then I saw like a meds thing in the kitchen. And I was like, holy fuck. Like I've just had like a bareback threesome with at least one person who's positive. So then I went on PEP, which was the post-exposure um, treatment for HIV at the time. But also retrospectively, I don't think it would have been a problem because he was undetectable. Right. Um, but we just didn't know about that so well at the time. Yeah. I guess the lesson is it's still really, really, really important to communicate. And, really? and, and assumptions are just... <laughs> They don't help anyone. Yeah. And really important to communicate. And I think also, like, it's really important and it's not selfish to look after your own sexual health rather than relying on someone else to be looking after it for you. So, yes, I am undetectable and you are not at risk from me. But, like, how much better if you're on prep and you are looking after yourself? So, like, if for whatever reason, maybe. I, my status has changed since my last test. It's unlikely, but it could happen. At least you know that you're doing what you need to do mm -hmm. to protect yourself. Um, and the same for me as someone with HIV, taking medication is actually, I take it to protect my health. It's a, uh, a side effect and a benefit that it's protecting other people, but I yes. take the medication for me. Yeah, that's a nice way of, yeah, just refocusing everyone's own personal responsibilities mm. well, thanks for sharing all of that That's okay let's talk about your next item yeah so my next item is uh my film or tv show which is london spy from 2015 uh created and written by tom rob smith <laughs> <laughs> should anyone want to look it up um and um this was a tv show that was based on a, a real life case of an mi6 agent who was whose body was found dead in a locked duffel bag in london I remember um, that case. Yeah, and it wasn't, it's not been solved as to what happened. And again, because of the connections with the Secret Service, it was all very mysterious and um, and sad. And uh, so this TV show was on. So 2015, that's five years after I got HIV. Um, I'd been very open with my mother about HIV, mm -hmm. but I wasn't open with her about like doing sex shows and stuff in London. And I would try and keep like, Obviously, she knew I was sexually active, but she'd only meet boyfriends. She wouldn't meet, like, of course. shags or whatever. So I was back living at home at this point, and uh, London Spy was on with the lovely Ben Wishore in, and I watched the first episode, and it was re like a really, really great piece of TV. Um, beautifully shot, very evocative of London, which appealed to me because I was missing London. And so the second episode, my mum watched with me, and it featured a chemsex party, where uh, Ben Whishaw rocks up at um, the apartment of a character played by Mark Gattis, who's um, smoking like crystal meth in a glass pipe. And I think at this stage in my life, I had seen these things in real life. Uh, and like one, I found it fascinating. I was like, I wasn't sure how they would achieve this on TV. I couldn't imagine how they would achieve it without it really happening. But also, it was a very odd scene to watch sat next to my mother mm -hmm. after I told her how great the drama was. <laughs> <laughs> and then what we said. I really want you to see this. It really reminds me yeah. of my London life. <laughs> it just makes me miss London so much. And I think it's always interesting when, like, 
sex and drugs is sh- shown in film and TV because sometimes it's shot to be sexy and other times it's shot to to make you, I guess, pity the people mm-hmm. involved or for it to look unpleasant. And this was very much filmed to be, like, not sexy. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I guess I sat next to her and I'm not really knowing how to talk to her about this, whether I should talk to her about it. And there are also other moments in the drama. So one of the, like, there's some really good, quite camp performances. I think there's like two particular, I think Charlotte uh, Rampling is in it maybe, and another very fierce uh, actress. But yeah, it's this chem sex scene and then a, a point where Ben Whishaw's character discovers the the playroom or like the sexual dungeon that belonged to his lover that he didn't know about. It's full of all these incredible like stainless steel, like speculums and dildos and sounds. And I saw it and was like, oh, this is hot. But I think the point of seeing it as the viewer is to be like kind of appalled or yeah. turned off by it or scared of it. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. And I think for me, having a sexuality that I know a lot of people wouldn't like um, has been something that I've really had to wrestle with to be comfortable with. And particularly when I was younger, I was like, okay, so being gay, having a boyfriend, being camp, being pink and fluffy and bleach blonde and um, smooth and hairless, all this is good gay. But like leather, rubber, chains, bondage, sleeping around, group sex, all this is being like a bad gay. And I really felt like I could only share being a good gay with my mum. Um, and so actually HIV was probably one of the only like bad gay things I shared with her. Um, and despite being really, really close, it then felt like there were... I wasn't sharing my full identity with her, mm. but actually that was, ba- that was bad for me. But like, it was really affecting my own sense of self and my sense of identity because I felt really split between like good boy John and like bad, bad piggy John or whatever. Whereas had I been able to articulate, oh, I'm like this. I am all these different things. I am good things. I am things that you're proud of. I'm things that you might not like to know about so much, but I am all of these things. And I'm a complex person. And yeah, I, I um, struggled not having these chats with my mum. It's not, I mean, that is not an easy thing. And I, I can't imagine there's many people in the world who have like good sex talks with their, with their mum. Yeah. What do you wish you, ha- what do you wish that she'd known? I presume not, you know, the intimate ins and outs as it were, but the, what do you feel like she didn't know about you? Um, to be honest, I think she knew m- more so I, I started doing porn. I filmed my first porn um, just before she died. Well, that wasn't the plan <laughs> in terms of her dying. But I'd known I wanted to do porn, and I felt confident that in time I would be able to tell my mum and help her realise that porn isn't shameful. Right. So it was. I was. Re- I really carried this message from her of it being shameful for being for people who are unhappy and coerced, and I wanted to be able to tell her like. I know this is what you think, but here is my reality of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but with her being very ill, it felt like on her deathbed, like not the, I don't know, I felt like I couldn't, or I really wrestled with it. And then ultimately she had the conversation with me and um, uh, she'd like started an Instagram, like a kind of secret Instagram. 
yeah, so she followed me and my brother and sisters and some other people. So yeah, we sat down. We, oh, I sat down next to her and she said, um, <laughs> she said, I think you're doing porn and I think you're doing it with men with extremely big cocks. <laughs> and um, this, like my Instagram didn't, wasn't, it was under my real name, it still is. It was never my intention for it to be a work account. But when I'd gone to Barcelona to film with Tim Tails the first time, Tim Kruger had taken a photo of us together and posted it. And I'd reshared it. And I guess in that wonderful, like, mum way of just tapping away on your iPad, she was able to, to do the maths and click through to Tim Kruger and then look up Tim Tails. And even though I wasn't on the website yet, she was able to... Um, the pieces of the puzzle together and so yeah the conversation wasn't the way i would have wanted that conversation to be and the only way really for the conversation to have been more the way i wanted it would have been if i'd had the confidence to initiate it and maybe if i even initiated the conversation of like oh i would like to do porn or i actually 10 years ago was exploring with sex work, but I don't think I would have been disowned in any way. It was just fear of, I guess, rejection. Mm-hmm. But also I knew I, I don't know what it was. <laughs> the conversation I was having therapy earlier. Because um, my younger brother, who I loved dearly, I hated growing up because it felt like he got away with everything. He would be difficult and unruly and break the rules and still received the same unconditional love that I got, whereas I felt I had to be good all the time. Mm. Um, And I know, like, I have friends who don't have good relationships with their parents, and it's connected to their sexuality or their gender identity. But I think, I don't know. Well, shame is a really powerful thing. And anyone who's had to have a coming out knows this experience of, understanding that you're probably going to be received just fine, but having to go over, get over that hurdle anyway of your own shame to, to admit it. And it sounds like you were grappling with that with your mom, even though you logically knew there was nothing shameful in what you were doing. It's going to change things Mm -hmm. potentially. How, how did that conversation go when she brought it up with you? I mean, at this point we knew that, she really wasn't very far away from dying. Mm. So there was no point in having, I I think for her, there was no point in having a fight. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't, if it had been a film, there'd be that magical moment of realization and blessing or something, but that didn't happen. I'm sure that my mum died with her opinions about porn still being the same mm-hmm. as they were. I think she probably died worrying about me and what my future might be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess as we'll, we'll go on to talk about other things, so much of my future since then, um, my mum died Christmas 2018. There's been so many moments where I've wanted to like share with her, like things I've done, achieved, experienced, seen. But yeah, with death, like we, different people in different places have different beliefs in what happens when when people die. So maybe that is a world or a place or a 
experience in which some of these experiences of I've had are shared with my mum. I don't know. But but yeah, I'm quite there's been a lot that's happened since 2018 for all of us. But it's, yeah, it's quite profoundly changed and shaped the way that I interact with the world yeah. Yeah. and how I and how I treat myself. I think now I'm I'm really keen to be my fully rounded self. If that means someone doesn't like me, that's okay because we're just not compatible. But me trying to be a, a different version of myself to please someone someone else, I ultimately think isn't going to work out well in the end mm-hmm. you've seen some of the pitfalls of that yeah and i know and just personally if i'm trying to be someone i'm not for someone else's benefit that's not pleasant or comfortable for me yeah yeah were you able to get any of the validation or understanding from from anyone else in your family like did you did you manage to get that I mean, I also, I ballsed up coming out to my brother and sister as a sex worker and they, they found out before I told them, but they're both hugely supportive. Right. My oh. brother lives in Hong Kong and um, me and my sister went to visit him the following Christmas. So the year after our mum died, we went to Hong Kong to visit him and I booked a go-go dancing gig for while I was there and they both came <laughs> to watch me. <laughs> and my, my brother walked in, I saw him after the show and he was like, John, like, as I was walking up outside... I saw this sign saying John Thomas XXX star, and I just felt so proud that you're my brother. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> um, but yeah, they're really supportive of what I do and me being successful and me being happy. But that's not a reflection on their relationship to like sex and sexuality. Sure. And we managed to negotiate that, and I think a very successful like we are a family. So I'm not about to show my movie and be like, I want of your course, feedback. Of course. <laughs> but I can still talk about work and about, you know, when I'm when I'm pleased I win an award or when I meet someone wonderful or when a funny story happens. Yeah. That, yeah. Like all that is still shareable. Whereas with my mum, I kept so much back. Well hopefully that experience meant that you could have that relationship with your brother and sister. And, you know, maybe that's a positive that comes out of it. And you know, if your mom was anything like the rest of your family, it sounds like she probably would have gotten there too. Yeah, I yeah, I believe that to be the yeah, and I I believe that to be the case. Me, my sister, and brother, like we are our family unit now, and I love them both so much, and I'm so proud of what they have both achieved so differently to me in the last mm. few years. Like our mum died, and because we didn't own the house, we had to move out of the house immediately. And then we scattered, and then COVID happened, and yet we've all individually like managed to kind of build strong and happy lives for ourselves in different parts of the world. And yeah, so I feel yeah, I feel very lucky with my family as what it is, even though it's an unconventional family unit now. Yeah, and it just goes to show that well, closure is important and great, but it's not something that you you always get. But if you have the opportunity to tie up loose ends with people you shouldn't shouldn't wait for it and someone else gave some really good advice which is you can't rely on someone else for closure mm-hmm. like or if you or if you rely on someone else to give you closure you might not get it mm-hmm. so it's on you to create that closure for yourself when a relationship ends or someone ghosts you if you like continue to pin your emotions on them and your well-being on them 
that's really dangerous. Whereas if you can find inside yourself, okay, I don't know everything that happened, but I can find some kind of peace ending, then that's going to be really powerful for you and you moving on with your own journey. I love that. Yeah. Well said. Thanks. I didn't say originally, but it definitely is is good. Yeah, it's great. Let's move on to your next item, which is the song Higher Love. Yeah, Higher Love by Kygo and Whitney Houston. Um, so <laughs> my mum died Christmas 2018. We moved out of the family home. Me and my boyfriend moved in together. That relationship came to an end. I was completely heartbroken. And it was just as I had booked my first trip back to the USA uh, since starting porn. And uh, I was just not in the mood for it. I was, again, terrified of going to the USA. I was at the airport. I had, like, two nights accommodation booked in New York, and then I was due to stay with friends of friends Mm -hmm. for the the rest of the week. And I got a message. I was boarding the plane. They were like, oh, sorry, the dog's sick. You can't stay with us. Oh, great. And I was like, fuck. I literally have no emotional energy whatsoever. I'm going to New York. I don't know what I'm doing. This is terrifying. I kind of just want to be dead because uh, my boyfriend doesn't love me. My mom's dead and all these things. But I got to New York. Um, I was go-go dancing for Frankie Sharp at his party Boys at Rebar in Chelsea and also in Brooklyn. And it was Halloween in New York as well. So it was like my first time doing Halloween in the USA. And I booked some accommodation last minute at the... Chelsea Inn, which is a former um, kind of AIDS hospice for gay men in New York and Chelsea Village. And I just had the most extraordinary week in New York, like flitting from like bars where I was dancing and chatting with people to drag shows, disappearing into Brooklyn, meeting sexy people, interesting people, going to art galleries, doing Halloween, which seemed to last like an endless yeah. <laughs> festival. Um, and one of the songs that kept being played was Higher Love, while I was dancing. There was one evening at a rebar where I was performing, where there were, I'd just done a, a live life drawing class. And immediately after the drag show by a, a new drag queen, I think it was like only a couple of weeks after she started her residency, uh, called Zeta Jones. And she was in full... Um, like a day of the dead makeup and she did this lip sync to higher love it was just like one of those moments it felt very powerful felt that all this connection again the sense of higher love being from like a dead mom who's up in the sky or whatever or being like a higher love for me for me as a single person also my, my mom in the 1970s had been a dj and she'd gone to new york by herself and gone to studio 54 so me walking around doing like nightlife in New York on my own, I just felt very connected to my mum wandering around New York, New York on her own in the seventies, going out. Got chills hearing that. Yeah, and um, so I just had the most incredible time, and I came back like completely restored with this new sense of self, self belief, sense that I was worth something, that I had like a reason to live. And I guess I've I've kind of cheekily used the song to sum that up, but it's like such a huge attachment to this very particular area of Chelsea Village around 8th Avenue and to Rebar 
to the Colonial Inn. I think it's called the Colonial Inn in Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe, I don't know, whatever. It's a really good, it's a good place. Go and stay there. <laughs> <laughs> but inc- yeah, incredible friends. And I think because I'd arrived with like two nights accommodation booked and nothing else, and the fact I managed to make it work was like, okay, like I can survive. Like, it, and it is just me. I haven't got a parent. I haven't got a partner, but I can make this work and I can get by and I can thrive. But I can thrive because I have a wonderful supportive network of queer people mm-hmm. and performers and sex workers and creatures of the night and and a loving brother and sister. It sounds like you said before that, you know, if it were a movie, you would have had that closure with your mom during that conversation. But I think the movie, the movie carries on and mm. sounds like that's I mean, I see that as the that catharsis moment in the in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And finding your your joy and your closure from within yourself, like you said. It's really nice. Yeah. No, it's true, yeah. That's actually a really good point you make. Because yeah, feeling connected to my mum, that's all on me and what I'm feeling. Mm. And my response to the space and the place that I'm I'm in. And yeah, and also New York is, is really yeah. fun. Yeah, if you get a chance to go be like carefree in New York, yeah. you should do it. <laughs> I had my weekend when I was 25 as well, and it mm. definitely blew my mind. Of, yeah. Like the feeling of possibility. Yeah. And actually, we've kind of... So I, I, I've lived in a, and traveled a lot. But I think of Bath... London and New York as being pl- like cities that built me. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't be me if it weren't for my relationship to these three cities, um, as well as the next one we'll talk about as well. And yeah, I think I, I like I know people that don't like New York, like people that are Americans or people that are Europeans. They're like, oh yeah, I didn't like it, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. But like, I guess when I went, because of everything going on in my life, it was the most perfect place for me. And nothing can happen to change my mind on how, on how wonderful it is because of my experience of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that, let's use that segue that you just gave me and move on to your final item, which is Club 69. Yeah, which, you know, is a real club. <laughs> <laughs> should, we, should we do it together? Yeah. Club 69. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Mum died, breakup, COVID, trapped in the UK, Brexit. Uh, <laughs> like a, lot of, a lot of shit's been shot on me in the last uh, few I, years. I don't want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it got to... What fucking year are we in? It got to January 2022. And I was like, you know what? I am a um, wonderfully independent at this point person, thanks to OnlyFans, financially, emotionally, um, morally. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I have friends who are porn actors who do just travel the world all the time. And that used to really scare me. And I was like, actually, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. So in uh, January a year ago, I gave up having a permanent place to live and went off traveling. And I went to Buenos Aires largely on a whim uh, because I'd briefly met an artist uh, at a Christmas party in Clerkenwell. And then he messaged me one day. I was like, when are you coming to Buenos Aires? And I checked the weather. And because it's a Southern Hemisphere, it was mm-hmm. summertime. So I was like, oh, I'm coming in four weeks. Mm-hmm. And again, I went, I booked a hotel for one week in Buenos Aires. 
And I arrived and I fell in love and then I booked an Airbnb and then another Airbnb and then a month and a half had gone by. And yeah, it's, it is an extraordinary city. And in it is Club 69, uh, which to give it its like correct name is Cuve 69. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies oh, to our Spanish-speaking <laughs> listeners. Um, Sorry for butchering yeah. that. And it is an institution. It began as a Thursday night club night. It's now on Saturday nights as well. Uh, it go- it's been going for, I think, like over 10 years. Okay. Um, and people were kind of... And also, because it, it sounded ridiculous, Club 69, to me, knowing that, like... Even Drag Race thought it was too ridiculous to call a club night Club 69, Uh (laughs) but that it actually exists. Um, So I kind of went with like, I don't know what I was expecting, but it's fascinating. It is, it's technically not a gay party. It's mixed, but it's very gay. Um, But there is a full stage show featuring drag queens, um, cis female dancers, cis male dancers, uh, kind of like cabaret artists and singers. Um, and the the theme changes for every club night. So there's two different themes every week. Wow. So the first one I went to was camping themed. <laughs> um, and there's basically a stage inside the club behind the DJ with like curtains and this kind of lit up neon Club 69 or Cluve 69 sign. And the performers initially, some of them are like out, there's like poles and podiums and they're kind of dancing, they're interacting with the crowd, they kind of greet you when you come in and they're in the, like, so they're all in their like camping costumes initially. We're talking like camping, like like outdoors. Outdoor camping. So yeah, it's like, it's not hiking. Sure. But it's camp. It's also, it is camp as well. Um, (laughs) That kind of theme just makes me think, oh yeah, that's a club that's been going for 10 years. If they're doing (laughs) a camping (laughs) So then, um, (laughs) what haven't we done? So then, and then the, the curtains opened. Sorry, I'm actually inside of the microphone as you can see it. <laughs> <laughs> to reveal a set of trees and like an actual tent. Wow. Um, and like a backdrop of mountains and whatever. And then you have this whole song and dance number where they introduce everyone. And then you get like a series of different vignettes, which some are just like go-go dancing. Others are more like routines. This kind of comedy drag moments. But there are people like coming in and out of the tent. So there's a kind of backstory of people fucking in the tent. And I guess it being away off stage. And for me, coming from theatre, it's like, this is an actual theatre show. Mm-hmm. And then the next time I went, it, the theme was Plastic Beach. So everyone was like dressed as Barbies and Ken dolls. Um, and again, there's a whole different design for the stage. My more recent trip to Buenos Aires, they had one themed for the World Cup. So they were all dressed as either like sexy football players one person was dressed like they had like a TV screen on their head. I guess they meant to be like <laughs> the broadcast. Yeah, the broadcast of it. <laughs> it. What's really funny is now I've been gone for a year. Like the anniversary of the first time I went there, they once again did like a camping theme party <laughs> because that's like there's a lot of costumes. Uh-huh. Two, that's like one hundred and something parties a year, different sets and costumes. So I guess <laughs> there must be ways that they recycle them. But yeah. It sounds amazing. As an events producer, it also sounds completely exhausting. I cannot imagine yeah. doing two themes a week. Yeah. And what I will say is once you start to go regularly, and if you and also I guess a lot of people that go there, they're there to party. So the stage show is kind of in the background. Yeah. But for me, I'm watching the show. And so after a while I was like, oh, like it's the same show. <laughs> they just change what they're wearing. <laughs> 
which even so, I've seen this box step yeah. before. <laughs> um, but it's brilliant. And um, the last time I was there, one of the people I bumped into on the dance floor was uh, one of the people that um, managed Rebar in Chelsea. Oh my gosh. And so I hadn't seen them since um, the last time I was in New York in January 2020. And it was like, oh my gosh, Facundo, like, you're here. Like, this is crazy. It's like, yeah, I'm from Argentina. And it's like, oh, perfect. <laughs> um, the other thing with Buenos Aires is because the inflation is so bad, um, you, there's no point saving money because your money will be worth less a week later after you've been paid. Wow. So then everyone like just spends their money immediately. Um, so there's quite a big party culture. And... Uh, I, even though I've traveled a lot recently, I've not been great at learning other languages. And there's something I find quite fun, or no, really hard, but you kind of have to embrace it, which is partying and not speaking the same language as anyone around you, uh, particularly when it reaches the point of the evening or the morning where like, even making small talk in your own language would be hard. Uh-huh. Um, and then navigating and negotiating those spaces as... Also, I'm a giant in South America as well. <laughs> so I'm just like this huge, like, uncommunicable thing. <laughs> um, trying to navigate my way through the space. I had that exact experience when I was in uh, Sao Paulo. Mm. I, went, I went backpacking for a few months and did, did South America and all the Spanish countries. I had a bit of Spanish and was like managing to get around. And then you land in Brazil and you're like, crap, I'm back at square one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I hooked up with a guy and ended up <laughs> having a conversation through Google Translate. Like, but before it was actually any use, like before smartphones were any good, before any of it, it was just like it was very rudimentary. Yeah, yeah, it's um, hard. Yeah, but fun, but really fun. And like, I love gay bars and venues. Um, I love that this party has been going for a decade. I love parties that have been going for one month. Like I, I think these venues need to be celebrated. And I think my job, I feel like it's, even though I do my job because I love sex and like body, body to body contact, my job is all about being online. And it's, and like through COVID, we learned of the benefits of being online and being able to perform and reach out to people across the world. Um, but through that, I think, it reinforced the importance for me of being in the same room as other people. Um, and right now, being in the same room with other people from other countries and other places and working out like what we have in common, what's different, invariably like what we have in common overrides everything else. So yeah, uh, Club 69 is one of those places. The beach in Ipanema is another incredible meeting point. I've met wonderful people from Brazil, but also from around the world, who are also on their own journeys, discovering themselves and their sexualities and where they fit in the community. Well, you just painted such a nice picture, and I just want to quit everything and become a nomadic porn star. It sounds great. Do it, do it, Crystal. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your list. It was such a nice um, and beautiful and thoughtful and um but yeah, I really appreciate how much thought you gave all of it. You really took the took the homework on board and Yeah. Well I panicked with the homework. I was like, fuck, I got like 
I think, again, my, my neurodivergent brain was like, oh, I need to think of all these items. And I was like, no, wait, I need to think of stories. And I was like, oh, wait, so do the stories fit the items or do the items fit the stories? Um, Just shoehorn it all yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Um, before I let you go, do you want to play a quick game of But Is It Queer? I would love to. Okay, so it's pretty straightforward. We're just going to give each other some some items and decide if they're queer or not. Um, do you want me to go first? You want yeah, to go? you go first. Okay. The the filmography of Melissa McCarthy. Uh, my gut says not queer, but then I was like, no, it's queer. Yeah. How, it, how should I, wait, should I be honest? Is like queer? Yes, no. Should it be? Queer oh, no, or? we can just we can debate. Okay. Yeah. I I I am also struggling. Uh, I also thought was like you meant Melissa Joan Hart to begin uh, with, and I was like, yeah, that's definitely queer. <laughs> Sabrina. Anything witchy? Yeah. Just straight away. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel like with Melissa McCarthy, her characters are often like quite queer coded. Mm. But the films don't. Yeah, they're quite commercial. Yeah. Mm, I'm gonna say maybe Melissa McCarthy queer her filmography not no, queer. Yeah, yeah, I, I support you in that decision. Okay, great. That's that. That's that decided. Venetian blinds. Wait, what's a Venetian blind? Uh, um, they are the ones which are like slats like this. They're, like they're, they're, they're plastic. Really they can, the cheap ones are like plastic or metal, and, and they like fold up all the way yeah, into one little. Like here. You can get nice ones made of wood, but generally they're the really crappy ones. They're just like. Right, and like, like little dogs are getting their heads stuck in them, or like yeah. you see like yeah, <laughs> very like what you might have in a classroom, I guess. And they're like, uh -huh. right, I need to close the uh -huh. blind so you can see the projector or whatever. Mm. I can see them in like I can see some campness to them <laughs> in like the right movie, the right art direction, uh, but I can't really imagine my day-to-day -day life incorporating a Venetian blind. So I'm going to say not queer. Cool. That's, that's, yeah, yeah. How do you feel? Um, yeah, to me, it feels inherently straight. Okay. Although I think they definitely make an appearance in a Hitchcock film where the guy has like the binoculars through right. the blind and that is a very queer image. Like, yeah. The, the kind of peeping Tom character. Yeah. yeah. But fundamentally, especially the cheap, nasty ones. Okay, so they're yeah. queer if you're like watching your neighbor with some binoculars. <laughs> Otherwise, um, make better design choices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just looking at the window. How about how about sunsets? Um, I feel like sunsets are queer if you're looking if you're queer and you're looking at them. <laughs> like, because um, I guess so. Sunsets are inevitable. Yeah, and and there's something about inevitability that to me <laughs> feels straight. Right? Like, if it's going to happen, it has to happen. Yeah. That's the norm. Yeah. So, therefore, it's not queer. Yeah. But, like, it's so fucking queer. Like, oh, the sunset. <laughs> and it's really pretty. Right now, it's pink, and the clouds are kind of, like, um, purpley. Yeah. Indigo. And, yeah. It is beautiful, but I think you're right. I think it's straight as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, nothing more straight than a predictable old sunset. <laughs> Now, now a sunrise could be a bit more queer because you've probably been out all night and you've, yeah. you're, you're seeing... I, oh, I had the best sunrise in Rio after a right. pool party in the middle of nowhere. See, that sounds queer. Yeah. Sunset, meh. You didn't, you didn't work for that. No. Okay, <laughs> um, you got one more for me? One more for you. The kind of... Those, like, silver lid coverings you get on platters in, like, 
uh, room service. Oh, queer. Yeah. So ornate. <laughs> make me feel so fancy. And like the, the room service display can make me pretend it's not like a hamburger under there. <laughs> <laughs> the way that you can be in the nicest hotel, but the room service options are like margarita pizza, oh, yeah. beef burger, yeah. or like club sandwich, yeah. or, or like pasta with pesto. And it's served <laughs> as if it's some kind of cordon yeah, bleu. You're, yeah, yeah, you're filet mignon, sir. Yeah. yeah, but that that theater and that feeling of like daintily lifting that handle and revealing your meal, I think, oh yeah, it makes you feel like you're a uh, Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone too. It just oh. feels it's very decadent. Yes. Uh, for me, it's like a Beauty and the Beast be our guest reference right. as well. I love that too. Yeah. Camp foods. I think it's time we all incorporated more silverware into our dining routines. Yes. Yeah. Pointless, ornate silverware. That's what I yeah. want. Lots of knives and forks. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Bye. Bye. That is it for this week's episode of The Things That Made Me Queer. Thank you so much for listening. Please go, share, comment, like, tweet, subscribe, TikTok, and I will love you forever. I'll be back next week with the final episode of Season 3. Thank you so much, and bye bye The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production. Our theme song is Something Like Summer by Kate Boy.